0: You can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Chapter 9, rather. It's a six upside down, in case you were wondering. Chapter 9. I might do this better if my Bible was turned around. And I would encourage you to hear now the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense of those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers in the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say, not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. No, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher, thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is too much if we reap material things from you. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of gospel of Christ. And do you not know that those who are employed in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Well, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, then that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, but if not of my own will, well, then I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward?" that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I might become a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I might become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I said last week that chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 should all be understood together as a unit. It's helping us understand what exactly follows the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, but if you're a Christian, Christ has purchased liberty for you. Well, what does that mean? How does that affect our relationships to others? Really, the question that we asked last week was, how is our Christianity useful? Who is it useful for? And how is it useful? Paul's point at the end of 1 Corinthians 8 was that we would to just consider, for instance, what we are free to do Or what it is that we have the right to do. Oh, we love insisting on rights and freedom, don't we? But we should also ask, what would love do? And are there ever instances when love for others, when love for our brothers and sisters, or even love for our non-Christian neighbors would restrain our freedoms would cause us to curb our rights, not insist on them, but freely give them up that we might be able to serve others well. In chapter 8, Paul laid down the principle, the principle concerning our own freedom and of the freedom that we have to give it up for the good of others. Well, now here in chapter 9, he's going to give us an example. He's going to offer himself as an example of what does this look like? In the life of a believer, in the life of a, of a church, of a church set in the middle of a city, full of those who have not yet been brought to repent and believe in Jesus. What does it look like? Paul's going to put himself forward as an example. And it's going to be instructive to us. Not because Paul's example itself is what each one of us in here are going to face, but because when we see Paul, we, we understand his love for others and how that love causes him to restrain certain freedoms and to curb certain liberties to give them up for the sake of others, then we might find ourselves equally instructed as we aim to do the same. The big idea of the passage, what I'm ultimately going to try to persuade you of in the coming moments, is really this. That the gospel frees us to give up our rights for the gospel. The gospel frees us to give up our rights for the gospel. And this is really what we're going to see, really two parts of the passage. In verses 1 to 14, we're going to see the first part of Paul's example, that is give up your rights for the gospel. But then beginning in verse 15, we're going to see Paul's the second part of Paul's example, that the gospel frees you to give up your rights. Not only does the gospel free you to give up your rights, but we give up our rights for the gospel. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There at the end of chapter 8, Paul says that just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that you should do it. Just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's profitable, especially, he says, if it tempts other Christians to sin against their conscience. Well, they might respond to him and say, but I'm free in Christ. As long as it's not sin, am I not free to do whatever I want? He says, beginning in verse 1, well, am I too not free? Is the one giving you this instruction not free? Is the one laying down this apostolic pattern also not free? He says, am I not an apostle? Notice the qualifications for an apostle here. That one has seen Jesus our Lord. That's first and foremost. An apostle is one who has seen the risen Christ. His disciples walked with him heard him teach and preach, saw him be crucified, and then saw him glorified in a risen body, and Paul did the same. And the Lord Jesus himself, in Galatians 1, Paul says Jesus himself is the one that instructed him. He says, no man gave me this gospel, it came from Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle because I've seen Jesus. I've been instructed by Jesus. But not only that, you see the fruit of my apostleship in in your own church. You are converted under the gospel that I preach. It's the foundation of this church. Am I not an apostle, he says. And so as an apostle, verses 3 and 4, he says, do we not, do we, and speaking of himself and his band of gospel workers, do we not have the right to eat and drink? And the answer is rhetorical, of course. Do we have the right to eat and drink? Well, yes, Paul, of course you have the right to eat and drink. Do we not have the right to take a believing wife? Do we not have a right to marry? Well, yes, Paul, in fact, you do too. In fact, all of this, you remember, Paul's already taught on. Chapter 8, are you free to eat? Of course you're free to eat. If you're free to eat, I'm free to eat. Chapter 7, are you free to marry in the Lord? Of course you're free to marry in the Lord and I'm free to marry in the Lord. Now, there may be times where I choose not to eat for the sake of the gospel, and we saw in chapter 7, I also choose not to marry in the Lord, though I'm free to marry in the Lord for the gospel's sake. I don't want to be divided. I want to give myself to a wholehearted devotion to Jesus and gospel ministry in the world. But are we free to do it, he says? Of course we are. All of that's ultimately leading up to his Main question there in verse 5 or verse 6 Well, then, if we have the right to eat and drink just like you do, and we have the right to marry, that is, that we apostles enjoy freedom in Christ just like you do, then do we have the right also not to work? Or, in other words, verse 14, do we have the right to get our living by the gospel? What Paul's going to do is he's going to make an argument for his rights. Before he can argue for his freedom, he wants to argue for his rights. The giving up of rights really means nothing if the rights that you're giving up are meaningless. And so he's going to begin by establishing what his rights as an apostle are, how he's given them up, and why he's given them up. And so here, establishing the fact of his rights as an apostle, he's going to make two arguments. First of all, in verse 7, he's going to make an argument from human authority, from human authority. He's going to make an argument from common sense. You can just look around you, and this is what we all know to be true when we look at our own experiences. But then in verses 8 to 14, he's going to make an even more powerful argument, a stronger argument, an argument from God's authority. So he's going to make an argument from human authority first and foremost, but then he's going to make an argument from God's authority. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? All of these are human examples. It's based on a human authority. It's It's natural reasoning. He's looking around at the creation and going, this is common sense. That if earthly kingdoms uses its wealth to supply the soldiers who defend them and vineyards use its own fruit to feed its vine dressers who cultivate them and flocks give milk to the shepherds who tend them, then how much more should you God's kingdom, God's vineyard, God's flock provide for gospel ministers. That if you are God's field in whom they are working, is not your fruit their fruit to enjoy? Because no, we have a right to it. This is common sense. That you look around your own experiences, you look around in your own workplaces, that you should be able to benefit from your work. That the very thing that you pour yourself into you do so that you might be able to enjoy some of its fruits. But he's also going to make an argument in verses 8 to 14, not just from human authority, but from God's word, from God's authority. And in verses 8 and 9, he's going to quote Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. He says, Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? He goes, Is God concerned about animals? Well, of course he's concerned about animals. He's the creator. He created all things good. He would love to see his creation managed in such a way that it gives him glory and it serves the good of his creation, that it might be fruitful. And so here he gives an example from justice. He's saying under that Old Testament law, when you let your oxen eat from the grain that they tread, let them eat the grain from the ground as they do it. That's how they're going to get their sustenance and their strength. They're earning for themselves as they tread the fruit of their labors. It would be unjust for you to muzzle the ox, not let the ox eat while it works. That's the moral principle underlining that Mosaic law from Deuteronomy 25. In fact, I read this week in my studies that slaves in Rome, this may have been familiar to the audience that Paul is talking to, that slaves in Rome were used to do this job. Not just oxen, but slaves. And they would take these slaves and they would chain them up so that they couldn't escape. And then they would put cone collars on them. The kind of collars that we might put on our dogs to keep them from licking themselves. And they would put cone collars on them so that as they tread the grain, they would not be able to eat any of it. That is altogether unjust. It is wicked and perverse to treat another image bearer that way. And so Paul's making an example here from justice. It is unjust to expect the one who works not to enjoy the fruit of his labors. If it's true of oxen, which are not made in the image of God, how much more true is it of those who are made in the image of God? And of all those made in the image of God, how much more is it true of those who labor to preach the gospel? He says in verse 10, no, 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 Deuteronomy 25, 4, in a sense, was written for us. It was written for us. It's it's moral principle applies to us. It's for our sake, he says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Here he's pulling that field language all the way back. Put your finger there and go back to chapter 3. Do you remember what he said? Verse 9, he says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Now he's taking that language of the church being God's field and he's importing it all the way over to chapter 9 and he's placing himself once again in the middle of that field as one who is working diligently in that field that it might be as fruitful as it possibly can be to guard it against pestilence of false teaching, to sow good seed in it that would bear good fruit day and night laboring by the sweat of his brow for their good. And so then here becomes the question. If this is the case, and you know this to be the case, not only the case because common sense says it is, verse 7, but also because God's law, the moral principle in it, says it's the case, then the question in verses 11 and 12 is this. Have we sown spiritual things among you? Then when you look around, are you seeing gospel fruit? Are you seeing... People come to Christ by faith, being brought from death to life. Are you seeing those who have been brought from death to life start to bear fruit in a a kind of flourishing of life? They're they're growing in their knowledge and, and in the grace of Christ. Then when you look around, are you seeing fruit? Well, listen, that's not ultimately because of us. That's because of the seed that's been sown. That's because the gospel that we have tirelessly sown in you is now by God's grace and his power bearing fruit. Remember all that language from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some of us may sow, some of us may water, but it's God that causes the growth. Have we sown spiritual things, he asks? Has our ministry, verses 10 and 11, been fruitful here? Because if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much, he asks, if we reap material things from you? In other words... If we've sown something so significant that it's bearing fruit to the good of the world around you, not only in your own lives, but the good of your neighbor and the glory of God, and we have labored tirelessly to that end in the gospel, is it too much that you would make sure that we would have the kind of provision, verse 5, that would enable us to eat and drink and to take a believing wife? To provide for our most basic needs, is it too much to ask? Paul is establishing his right. No, you should not muzzle the preacher, is what he's saying. But then he's going to give one final example. He just gave an example from justice there in verses 8 through 12 specifically quoting that civil law from Deuteronomy 25. But now in verses 13 to 14, he gives one final example, not an example from Jesus, but or example from justice, but an example from Jesus. Notice what he says, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple... Get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings, all according to the Mosaic law, that those who have no lot, no land in Israel, get their provision from their work. But then he says this, verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now hold on just a second. He's asking in verse 11, Have we sown spiritual things? Are you seeing spiritual growth? Is there spiritual fruit in this church? If the answer is yes, then you should support us in our ministry. But then he's going to ask a second question by giving the example of Jesus. Is the gospel proclaimed? Not merely is there fruit because sometimes fruit may be sparse. We don't want to just judge faithfulness by fruitfulness. We might look around, and that fruit may be slow in coming. So don't merely look for fruit. He's saying, secondly, is the gospel proclaimed among you is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, of the very Son of God being sent to live a life that sinners like you and I could not live, being born under under the law, born of a woman, that he might redeem us who are cursed by the law. That we might become sons and daughters of God is that at the heart is Christ crucified at the heart of that message. He says, Jesus says, verse 14, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But now, wait a minute. In verse 14, we don't see any quotation marks. Is he quoting Jesus? What is he doing? Is he paraphrasing Jesus? I don't remember Jesus saying anything specifically like that. Well, in verse 14, Paul isn't quoting Jesus explicitly. He's paraphrasing his teaching. And specifically, he seems to be tying together a couple of threads. So hang with me for just a minute. Put your finger there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and turn to your left to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, or chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 9. Sending out his, his apostles, this is what he tells them, how he instructs them before he sends them out to preach. He says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there till you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But notice what it says here. That as they go, they are to be dependent upon those to whom they preach for their provision. It becomes even more clear in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Go to your right, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Verses 7 and 8. Here again, he's accounting on the sending out of the 72. He's sending out more disciples to go preach. And he says in verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the house, eating and drinking what they provide For the laborer deserves his wages. Who's the laborer? The laborer is the one preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as you go village to village, preaching the gospel, and you're brought into people's houses, don't become dependent ultimately on yourself, but depend on them to provide for your every need. Going back to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is the same thing he says that Jesus taught. So, have I come among you, Paul says, preaching the gospel? Yes, Paul, you have. As I've preached the gospel, have people gotten saved? And of those of you who are saved, have you grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Yes, Paul, people have gotten saved, and yes, we've grown. Well, then do I not have a right for you to provide for my material needs as one who preaches the gospel among you? Yes, Paul, that is your right. But notice what he says, verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you see the principle now? Chapter 8. If you need to become a vegetarian for the sake of your brother or the sake of your sister and give up meat because that meat sacrifice to idol is going to cause them to sin against their conscience, then you be a veggie for life. But Paul is a good pastor. He's a good leader. He's not peddling unapplied truth. He's saying, I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am unwilling to do. Is this an important Lesson for leaders. Oh, you better believe it is. For us elders in here, and you deacons, and for any of you who aspire to be elders or deacons in the church, then I would encourage you to consider Paul's example here. Are we asking our church to do anything that we ourselves are unwilling to do? Paul is a good example. He says, I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am unwilling to do. He recognizes that a leader who peddles unapplied truth in his own life loses moral authority. And now he's putting forward his own life, his own example as the moral basis, as being exemplary for why they could become a veggie for life, chapter 8, if that's what was needed. I'm not asking you to do anything that we ourselves are not doing. He says in verse 12, we have not made use of this right. I could demand it if I wanted to. But no, instead, I work hard as a tent maker. I work hard as one who tans as a tanner. That's hard, stinky work, being a tanner. And it puts you at the lowest dregs of society. But Paul doesn't care. If it ends up opening doors for the gospel, he'll do it. He won't insist on his rights. I'd rather go vocational. I'd rather go work for my living than to put an obstacle in your way. Even though it's good and right for you to provide for me, I'm not going to insist on it if it's going to put an obstacle for the gospel. There's a few things that we need to recognize here. First of all, chapter 9 is an ultimately a text on paying pastors. We see that in other, in other verses. Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 5... It's a circumstance that Paul's enduring, but the primary point of the passage is the giving up of rights. And that the gospel frees us to do that if it serves the good of the gospel. He's not ultimately making an argument for paying your pastors. Though Galatians 6.6, those who teach you, you should share all good things with them. Those who preach and teach the word. 1 Timothy 5. That you should give them double honor. They're not just worthy of being honored as your leaders, but they're worthy of honorarium. They're worthy of being supported in their ministry. Why? Because the preaching and teaching of the word of God is the very means whereby the church is established and built up. He's laboring in the word, and you should provide for them in those ways. That is a right according to the gospel that those who labor in the gospel have from those who benefit from it. But Paul says here, There's a circumstance in this church for which I will not claim that right, and it's mainly this, that there are some among the Corinthian church who are claiming to be so-called super apostles. They're false teachers, and they're motivated by greed, and they love accumulating things, earthly things for themselves, and it gives them a better standing in Corinthian society. And Paul recognizes that if he comes in, perhaps, and and claims his right— to be provided for in this way by this church, it might become confusing. Perhaps Paul's really no different than these other apostles, these false teachers, who are all about building crowds and followings for the sake of lining their own pockets and establishing their own reputations. Paul says, I see a circumstance here perhaps where claiming my right would be an obstacle to the gospel. It might be a stumbling block to many, and I would much rather preach the gospel without any kind of interference or stumbling block and have to tan hides overnight than to demand my right from you if that would be spiritually injurious. He says, this is the example. Does Paul have the right? Yeah, you better believe he does. Verse 12, do we make use of this right? No, why? Because we gave it up for the gospel. There is something more important than our rights. There is something more important than the full exercise of our freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as it's not sin. And that is that we make ourselves slaves to others for their good. And that's Paul's point in the second half of the chapter. That the gospel frees you to give up your rights what we're going to see is that the giving up of rights isn't this kind of like weird begrudging thing. It's not like a white knuckled thing where I really, really, really want this thing and you're going to have to pry it out of my white knuckled fingertips in order to get it. It's something that the gospel, because of all that we've received in Christ, frees us to give up. Because we already have something so much better in Christ than the claiming of any particular rights or freedoms for earthly things. Follow Paul's logic. Verse 12, as I just pointed out there, is the foundation. He's saying to them that you can give up whatever you need to give up. You can even become a vegetarian for the sake of your fellow Christian, chapter 8, in the same way that I gave up my right to be financially supported in my ministry. He says, I have rights, but using them would make it harder for people to become Christians. Christians. And if I've got to choose between my rights or the gospel, then I'm going to choose the gospel every time. But more than anything, perhaps Paul is pushing back on these brothers and sisters for a handful of other reasons. I've already mentioned one, but perhaps the big controversy that Paul seems to be avoiding is the idea that the gospel worker is in it for money. He doesn't want him to think he's motivated by greed. But maybe even aside from that, in Corinthian society, he wants to avoid the temptation for these Corinthians who are so tempted, so lured into being impressive in society's eyes of being powerful and rich and having wisdom, that he doesn't want them to think that the gospel is something that you can buy. Paul can't be bought. And that even though things are different for us than Paul, don't these principles still apply for us today? I wonder how many Christians through the years have, have thought themselves to be in good standing because they donated all the money that was necessary to establish the education center at the church building. And they even got their name put on the door. I wonder how many people perhaps think that in giving their money in a certain way that it obligates the leaders of their church to them in a certain way, that their money becomes a a way for the tail to wag the dog in the ministry of the church, so to speak. Paul doesn't want that to be the case. He says, no, the tentacles of Corinthian society are already getting tangled up in, in this church way too much. And I just don't want that to be an obstacle. You can't buy the gospel. Those of you who have no money, you come and buy and you eat for free. Christ has already bought it. more than anything, it may have been even a push back on the rich Christians thinking that they could buy God. Whatever the reason may be, it's clear that Paul is especially concerned about the purity of the gospel. And he's willing to do all of it because according to verse 17, he has a reward. He says, I do this of my own will. He says, going back to 16, he says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? Why is preaching... The gospel, not grounds for boasting. Well, he's going to tell us. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, judgment on me if I don't preach the gospel. Because I don't do it out of my own will, just out of my own pleasure. I have a stewardship that has been given to me as an apostle. I don't do it in my own will. I have been entrusted with it. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sent me. I don't have a choice. I have to do it. So the preaching of the gospel itself isn't the reward. Well, then he says, verse 18, What is my reward? could be a couple of things. We see here that it can't be just the mere preaching of the gospel itself. He does that under compulsion. But it might be, as we saw in chapter 3, that his ministry would end up surviving the fire of judgment. Remember? Many build on that apostolic foundation with precious gems and stones and others with wood, hay, and straw. My reward is to see my foundation and everything that I build on it lasting through the fires of judgment. That would be a legitimate reward. But I wonder if more specifically to our text, Paul's reward is seen there in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. It seems that Paul's reward is sharing with the saints in the blessings of the gospel. My reward is seeing conversions. My reward is seeing you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Whether a penny from you comes my way, I'm not really losing any sleep about it because I love to see you grow. That's my reward of enjoying Christ and everything that is in him. Or to put it another way, Paul gave up his freedom to offer for free the gospel that makes men free. Paul gave up his freedom to offer for free the gospel that makes men free. Verse 18, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. Nobody is ever going to be able to accuse me of doing it for the bling. Nobody's ever going to be able to accuse me of walking around with too much drip, as my kids say. I just, that's what, that's what, that's the whole reason he's preaching the gospel, is just to get that drip. Nobody can accuse me of that. Nobody out there, if I can't be bought, can ever think, unlike those super apostles, that they can leverage their own money and their own wealth for the spiritual blessings of God. The only way to come into these blessings is not through your paycheck or through your, through your bank account. But it's by repentance and faith in Christ. And that's it. So Paul's going to say now, how does the gospel free you to give up your rights? Well, he says in verses 15 to 18 that he was freed to make the gospel free. If taking one penny is going to cause anyone to stumble or misunderstand the gospel, then I don't want it. I will tan hides and work overnight shifts so that no one is confused. But secondly, verses 19 to 23, we're freed to be a slave to all. Look at what he says. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become a Jew. He says in verse... 21, to those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I become weak, that I might save the weak. Why does he do it? Verse 23, into verse 22, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul wants to do as many people as much good as he possibly can for the gospel's sake. That's his motivation. And the gospel has freed him to do that. Notice he's listed a couple of settings. He's talking here both about non-Christians, that is, those who are under the law and outside the law, Jews and Gentiles. And he's talking, I think, about those who are inside the church who are Christians to the weak. Those would be those concerned in chapter 8 of weak conscience. He says, to those who are under the law, those are Jews, I would make myself just like them, verse 20 that I'd be willing to set aside my freedoms and my rights knowing that I don't have to submit to, to Mosaic ordinances anymore. Those, those ordinances under the law of Moses have been done away with in Christ, but if it would help some come to the right knowledge of Christ, then I'll be happy to do it. And I'll be especially happy to have my pastoral intern, Timothy, do it. Acts chapter 16. Oh, Greek Timothy. He's going to come along, and he's going to have to do some gospel ministry among the Jews. Well, the sign of the old covenant was circumcision, and Timothy being a Greek is not circumcised. So, at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, he says, and I had my disciple Timothy circumcised. <laughs> Can't imagine that many were lining up for his pastoral internship after that, but that's the point. There are certain things that I would be willing to give up or have cut off if it means that it doesn't present an obstacle for the gospel to those that we aim to preach it to. But not only that, he says, those who are free from the law, that I am willing, much like Jesus, to eat with tax collectors and sinners, at least to those more pharisaical self-righteous types that might look at me, I would free to make myself a Gentile like one from among the nations if it helps them become saved in hearing the gospel. And he says further, I make myself weak that I might win the weak. And that could really, verse 22, mean two things. Either it means the weak of the world, those who set aside earthly influence, as we saw in chapter one, right? Not many of you were powerful, but you were weak. He's saying, so maybe I'm making myself materially impoverished. I'm making myself like one who has no societal standing whatsoever. That could be his meaning. Or it could be the weak of chapter 8. Those who are weak of conscience. Those who are outside of the law as Christians, but continually put themselves under the law in their conscience. I think given the context, because chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together, it's likely speaking of those kinds of weak brothers and sisters. If they won't eat meat, then I will gladly make myself a vegetarian, he says. But what's his motivation for all of that? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Everything is in service to the gospel. Why? So that he might share with converted Jews and converted Gentiles and weak Christians in the blessings of the gospel. He wants to see people saved and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, their creator. And so Paul's asking, what would love do? Would love demand a paycheck from the church in this particular circumstance? And are these, in these settings, not just what I have a right to do, not just what am I free to do, but what would love do? What does love demand? And so in this instance, Paul says, I'm willing to give up my own culture for another. Spiritually speaking, Paul's willingly made himself a third culture kid. Some of you know what that is. A third culture kid is, is someone who has citizenship in one country, but being a missionary or perhaps one who travels with parents who worked internationally, live in other cultures. So they're familiar with other cultures. Those cultures feel like home to them. They speak that language. They're used to those cultural rhythms and and those... Uh, and that food, and those people, and and that way of life, and yet their citizenship is over here, and when they come here, and then they're kind of in in home here, and it's the third culture kid is one who has their foot in, in both cultures, but doesn't really have a home in either place. Neither place feels fully like home, and that's what Paul's saying. I could easily put my foot in the Jewish world and gladly be a Jew for the Jews' sake. And I could easily put my foot in the Gentile world. I'm a Roman citizen, and I would gladly do it for the gospel's sake. But I don't have a foot firmly planted in either one, because ultimately, I live in the gospel. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. This is my home. That's my third culture. And that makes me culturally fluid this reminded me of my days back in high school. For those of you who are in high school, I don't know how it is now, though I can't imagine it's much different. And you think about all the, the cliques and the groups and you got got the, the cool kids and the smart kids and the jocks and the band students and the goths. Are there goths anymore? Does that exist? And all of them have their own badges of belonging, don't they? This is what it means to be part of this tribe. This is how you talk. This is how you dress. This is who you associate with and this is who you don't associate with. And that's a really powerful thing, isn't it? I think back to my time in high school and going, oh man, I'd really like to associate with those people, but what would this group think if they saw me with that group? And I really want the approval of that group. And would they really approve of me and bring me in and accept me if they knew that I was aligned with those kind of people over there? That's stressful. For those of you who are in high school now, it's better you than me. I don't want to go back there. And it's really no different. It's not just high school, is it? We find that in our workplaces. We find that in our own subcultures in a variety of different places. There's all kinds of badges of belonging. And Paul's saying, listen, I am willing To be ridiculed and rejected by whatever tribe I previously considered myself a part of, I am willingly free to give up whatever badge of belonging was so significant to that group and adopt the badge of belonging for another group if it helps me get the gospel across to them. Does that make sense? He says, when it comes to all those tribes and cliques, I'm a fluid person. I'm a third culture kid. I'm in the kingdom of Christ. I can go from one tribe to the next if it serves the gospel. And he's going, that's the way you need to be. So if you're part of that meat eating tribe and you love that and you've got your, you know, your monthly meat sacrifice to idol subscription that comes in every month and you love it. He's saying, maybe you need to be part of the veggie tribe for a little bit if that's what serves the good of your brother, if it's what serves the gospel. Some of you are familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary, dressed like the, ended up leaving England, went to China and dressed like the Chinese of the time, adopted silk robes and tied his hair back in a knot and totally enculturated himself. And at the time when he went, you don't realize how scandalous that was. We hear that and we go, well, of course, if a Christian is going to go to another culture, it only seems obvious that they would dress and speak and and enculturate themselves for the sake of the gospel in that culture. But that is not the way that it was thought about then. And it was scandalous for him to do it. So scandalous, in fact, that he was accused of being a traitor, a traitor to the empire, that he was accused essentially of treason. He was accused of, of essentially giving up his own ethnic superiority because that's what the english empire was all about at the time that the goal was to colonize the world with the superior culture of the english empire the british empire and for him to go and dress like a Chinese person and talk like a Chinese person and and to do the things the Chinese people do, then what they're communicating, then what he's communicating to them is that they don't need to be white in order to be accepted by God. They're savages was the argument that they made. Hudson Taylor didn't care. Why? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Josh Ward, can you be a Christian in China for any amount of time and not think at some point about Hudson Taylor and the inroads that he made in his work 150 years ago? Don't answer that question. (laughs) Boy, I thought I set that one up on a tee. So awkward. <laughs> Either way, the answer is yes. But that's what Hudson Taylor's saying. If it helps make the gospel clear and I can save some, then I'm going to do it. It was worth it for people to hear the gospel in their own language from someone who valued their culture. Well, Paul's going to say, if I don't do that, verses 24 to 27, then I've essentially disqualified myself. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize so that, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest... After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. All of them are athletic images. Paul's bringing us into the Olympics. We're in the arena now. And the point that he makes in verse 24 is not that one runner only goes to heaven. There's one winner and everyone else is a loser. It's not like Ricky Bobby's dad. If you ain't first, you're last. Second place is just first loser. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is the example. This is how we're all to run. We run not to receive worldly accolades, but heavenly accolades. That Paul is happy to be thought of as silly or weak or foolish if it serves the gospel. So in verses 25 and 26 then, he says, in the same way that an Olympic athlete gives up all the things that they have a right to and they're free to enjoy the kinds of food that they could eat and the kinds of pleasures in this life that they're willing to do, in the same way that they're willing to give all those things up to run the race and to win the prize, we do the same thing for the gospel. Because it's worth it. There's something more driving and motivating us. And the same for Paul. He says, I want to enjoy the reward of sharing in the blessings of the gospel with those that are saved under my ministry. And for that, I will give up whatever I have to give up. No cultural badge, no sacrifice, no dietary preference. Nothing is too small. If it helps me serve the good of others for the gospel's sake. So what does Paul have to say? Give up your rights for the gospel. The gospel is bigger than your rights and your freedom in every circumstance. But secondly, the gospel frees you to give up your rights because of all that you've received in Christ. Beloved, I can keep going, but I think it'd be good just to pray that God would give us the grace to do that.